Um, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. That's Genesis 37, 1 through 11. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Okay, go ahead and have a seat. All right, are you guys ready? Because I'm coming at you hard today. All right, there is so much good stuff for the Lord, uh, from the Lord for us today. So just like get ready, sit up tall, because there's so much goodness. Okay, so um, this is now like the final movement in the story of Genesis. There's many more chapters, but this kind of signals the beginning of the end of the book. And last week we witnessed the turning point in Jacob's life where he wrestles with God and then he's given his new name Israel. And today we're introduced to the story of his sons who will become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so far the story in a sentence is this. Despite all of uh, the human failure, there is hope for humans because God is still faithful to bless the family that he promised he would save the world through. That's what's been going on so far in the story. And as we read on, I hope, and I'm sure some of you are out there with me, like we're, like we're sort of rooting for the characters in this story. It's like we want to see the next generation of God's people getting it and to cooperating with God's plan. However, like as we just read there, the setup to this chapter is not looking good for Jacob's line. First off, he's got a super complex relationship with his own parents and with his brother. He's estranged from his in-laws. And now we learn he's got 12 sons, a bunch of daughters from four different women. So some problems are hard to figure out. But this isn't one of them. You don't have to be a marriage and family therapist like Devin to learn that there is going to be a lot of major dysfunction in this family line. Just imagine the Thanksgiving dinners and everything else you'd have to deal with in a family like that. So many scholars have pointed this out, that that's actually kind of the focus of this section. Every generation, the sin of the parents follow their children, and in many cases it gets worse. Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael. Isaac favored Esau over Jacob. And now Jacob is favoring Joseph over the other 11. And each generation, the fallout, 
of hatred and jealousy gets worse, which we'll see today. So the, the wise thing for us to do is, as we're reading these stories, is to pay attention so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. So this is the first principle. Whatever's not transformed in us will be transmitted to our children and to the people in our sphere of influence. Whatever's not transformed will be transmitted. We've all inherited some really great things and some great traits from our family of origin, from our parents, and we've also inherited some sinful habits. No offense, Mom, but there were a few. I just deeply offended her. I'm so sorry. Let me throw myself under the bus for a second. Just this past week, uh, I was um, disciplining my daughter because she was picking on her little brother. It's something that happens a fair amount in our household. And mid-conversation, I'm disciplining her, and I thought to myself, where did she learn to argue like this? And then it was like, dang it, like, it's, it's really, it's me. I'm the one to blame uh, for, for this one. But when we're self-aware and when we confess our sin and when we submit to the process of transformation, things like community and the rest of the practices of Jesus, we end up passing on our transformed selves and fewer sinful habits, which, Mom, is exactly what you did, is you passed along your more transformed self and fewer sinful habits. I was just poking fun at you. Um, The other thing that we can learn from Jacob's generational sin is that God is masterful at using broken people to accomplish his plan to save the world. Despite all the favoritism and sibling rivalry and jealousy and hatred that should have sabotaged the mission of God, because of all of God's wisdom and power, he is still victorious. While keeping his promise to work with all of these really flawed people, he's able to still rescue and save. And my friends, that's the hope for the church. Despite our failures, God's not abandoning you. He still wants to partner with you to bring his victory in Bend, Oregon today. And that's our ambition. That's our goal. Our, our, our prayer, our, 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 our ambition here at Riverbend is in Bend as it is in heaven. And we just believe that we don't have to be perfect in order for God to move in power through us. We believe that he's actually using us even though we're deeply flawed. So the story centers around this guy named Joseph. And Joseph is 17 years old when we are introduced to him. And the initial impression that we get from this guy is that he's gifted and blessed, but he's also immature and prideful. And this is the duality, the tension that defines the early years of Joseph's life. We're told that he's the favorite son of his father. We've already mentioned that. Reuben was the firstborn, right? So in the ancient world, that meant that he would get his father's birthright. We talked about that a couple weeks ago with Jacob and Esau. But just like in the story of Jacob and Esau, God does something different. He subverts the tradition of his day, and he elevates the 11th born to receive the birthright instead of the firstborn. So in other words, what's, what's going on here is signaling to us another example of how God's heart is bent towards people who are on the margins, people who are normally skipped over, people who are looked past. Those are the ones that God's heart is bent towards. And that is not Joseph's fault. That is just God working. That's just God's favor. He's a blessed man. But then here's what happens. Most of you know the story. Jacob gives his son a coat of many colors, just like the play, the Technicolor dream coat, right? It's very expensive, and it's a very exclusive gift that the other brothers didn't get. 
So just imagine this for a second with me. Remember when you were growing up, you were in high school or whatever, and your parents sat you down and they said, listen, if you want a car, then you have to go to work and you have to save up and you have to buy your own car and you have to buy your own gas and you have to buy your own insurance and all of that. And it was hard, but you did it. And you became a barista or whatever. And so you saved up for months and months until one day you had just enough money to buy like a terrible Nissan that barely ran, but at least you had a car. So this story would be like if your little brother, you went through all of that and then your little brother turned 16 and your parents just give him a BMW. Imagine the injustice of something like that. Your parents just giving your brother something that he did not have to work for that you spent all of your teenage years working for. And here's the thing about Joseph. Joseph has no issue rolling up to a meeting with all of his brothers in his BMW. He went out to the fields to check on how his brothers were doing with the sheep. It's what his father asked him to do. And as he was checking on them, they were all in like their shepherd's clothes, like Carhartt before it was trendy or something like that. And then Joseph is dressed in his super bougie designer coat of many colors. And it wasn't a good look. Nobody likes a show off, right? Not only that, he came back with a negative report about his brothers to his father Israel. And nobody likes a tattletale. So he's got a lot of things going for him, but he's also got a lot of things stacked against him. Joseph is blessed by God, there's no question. But because he's immature and prideful, his brothers hate him for it. They hate him for it. And the next thing that happens in Joseph's story makes the problem even worse. He gets two prophetic dreams, right? We just read the story. In one dream, he's a stock of wheat, which I know may not make a whole lot of sense in our cultural context, but for Joseph, it made a lot of sense. And there are 11 stocks of wheat who are surrounding him, and they represent his brothers. And in the story or in the vision, they're bowing down to him. In the second prophetic dream, the sun and moon and 11 stars are bowing down to him again. So in other words, what these visions are saying is that his parents and his brothers are going to serve Joseph. So first off, what are we supposed to do with things like this, like prophetic dreams and everything else? I think what the scriptures are teaching, not just here but throughout the library, is that prophetic dreams are an amazing way that God wants to speak to his people. In fact, Joel chapter 2 says that when the Lord pours out his Holy Spirit, young people will see visions, old people will dream dreams, daughters and sons will prophesy when the Spirit of the Lord is poured out. So in other words, what God wants to do is he wants to embolden his people with dreams of our future, and he wants us to inspire us to trust in him. It's all really, really good stuff. And I think that the more that we press into both the presence of God and the practices of prayer, the more we experience things like the prophetic um, that I think we ought to be, in the language of 1 Corinthians 14, earnestly desiring, right? So if you know the rest of the story, you know that these dreams actually come true for Joseph a couple of decades later. So what God is doing is decades before it happens, God is revealing to Joseph that he's going to become a ruler. He's going to become a ruler, which again, if you're a careful student of the Bible, you'll remember that this was the first blessing that God ever promised humans was that you're going to rule over the earth with me. 
So essentially what God is saying to Joseph is, hey, man, we're getting back to it. We're getting back to my original design, my original plan back in the Garden of Delight. You are going to rule with me over the earth. So here's the question. Were the dreams good or were the dreams bad? The dreams are good and they're true and they're showing how Joseph is going to lead in the kingdom of God's advance. But, but here's the deal. He's extremely prideful and immature, and so he just has to tell his brothers about it. He gets, hey, guys, I had a great dream the other night. Why don't you come over here so I can tell you about it? And then he says, guess what? Y'all are going to be bowing down to me before long. Now, I was a pretty arrogant teenager, but, man, even I know you can't taunt your brothers like that. It just is not going to go well, especially your older brothers. So 17-year-old Joseph, he needed to hear Proverbs 27.2, which says, Let another man praise you, and not your own mouth. A stranger, and not your own lips. See, bragging about your blessing, it's still pride. And in fact, religious pride is the sin that Jesus confronts the most in the story of the Gospels. Again and again, with the religious elites, he's calling them out and saying, Actually, that's not becoming for men and women of God. So here's the lesson. The lesson is this. It's, it's possible for us to be gifted and blessed, but not ready for the responsibility of our calling. And that might be your situation. You're gifted, you're blessed like Joseph. You show a lot of promise, but you're just not ready for the responsibility of your calling yet. So God needs to do a work in your life and in your heart. So we live in a culture that celebrates talent. So if you have enough talent, you can get rich and famous overnight by gaining followers on the internet. It's kind of how our world works. And this is actually what comes into a lot of young people's minds when they think about success. For a good number of Gen Z, success is this idea that my talent makes me a marketable commodity. And so I'm going to make a lot of money, gain a lot of influence with minimal effort by building a brand. And the brand's going to be all about me. Now, I think the great tragedy and the problem with this is that it's actually worked. It's worked enough times so that now it's a cultural obsession in the 2020s. Except it hasn't really worked because the effects of it have been extremely problematic in society, particularly when it comes to mental health and things like anxiety and everything else. Turns out we can't actually handle the pressure, many of us, uh, the pressure of our talent. For example, growing up, I, was, I, was, I competed in swimming, and I uh, raced against Michael Phelps of Fairmount growing up. We would compete a couple times a year. And uh, I remember watching his historic 2008 Summer Olympics, and I was long done swimming at that point because I wasn't him. Uh, I was just watching him on TV. But uh, he had this epic run, eight golds, five world records in a single games. Now, if you want to set out and top that, First of all, I believe in you, but they would have to actually change the rules of the games first because he limited out the number of races that you could actually compete in. So at the time, I remember watching um, the, you know, the end of the games and everything, and there was conversation by the sports reporters at the time that Phelps had, significant, he had made a case for himself for being the best athlete in the history of the world of sport. They were like, I don't think there's ever been anyone more talented than this guy. And then the following week, less than a week later, he was arrested while leaving a college party driving drunk and high. And later he goes on to describe that as the worst year of his life. He wasn't actually able to celebrate his accomplishment. He was actually just trying to escape the immense pressure that he was feeling being famous all over the world for his talent. So just because you're talented 
doesn't actually mean you have the character to handle the responsibility of leadership. And particularly when it comes to Christian ministry, I've always believed and often shared with much of my peers and young leaders who care what I have to say, is that you don't actually want a ministry that outpaces the formation of your own soul. You want influence, you want leadership and responsibility that your heart is ready for, that your character can sustain. And I mean that in a super hopeful way, like, God, let's make, please make us, please make me, please make Riverbend into the kinds of people who are trustworthy with real spiritual responsibility and real spiritual authority. And I, I think that if God answered all of our wildest prayers, I don't know if we would have the character to sustain it. I don't know if we'd be able to handle all of the things that we're asking God for. And so therefore the Lord, just like with Joseph, is deepening our experience of his grace through a journey through the journey of what we're going to find is called exile. And for Joseph, his ego was the main issue, and his ego cost this, his relationships with his family, and it led into decades of brutal consequences. And most of you guys know this story, but just to sum up really quickly, here's what happens next. Joseph is headed back out to visit his brothers, and they see him off in the distance, driving up in his BMW, the coat of many colors, and they're like, man, here comes that dreamer. That's what they call him. Here comes the dreamer. And then they hatch a plot to kill him. Which, by the way, does that sound familiar? Right? Remember, we got Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau. That trend of that sin of violent hatred, it, it's, it's back. But kudos to Reuben, the oldest, because he steps up and he convinces them not to murder Joseph. Let's just throw him in a pit instead. That was his idea. And there's, by the way, tons of details here that we're skipping over. But long story short, while they've thrown Joseph in a pit, some Ishmaelites, that name should be familiar to you. It's like um, Abraham's other son. They pass by on their way to sell goods in Egypt. And so they end up selling Joseph for 20 pieces of silver, which should also remind you of Judas selling Jesus. So again, there's tons of drama that's all sort of building right here. This is a condensed all the themes and motifs of Genesis are all kind of coming to a head here in Genesis 37. But here's the irony that I think we're supposed to pick up on as readers. And this is important for our understanding of how we actually apply this passage. So hang with me for a second. God promised Joseph that he was going to be a ruler and the recipient of God's promise to Abraham. But he's not actually ruling in Canaan, is he? He's being trafficked as a slave to Egypt, away from God's blessing. And his brothers are not bowing down to him. They're actually betraying him and selling him off. And the people that he's being trafficked by are descendants of his great uncle, who was not God's chosen line. They were supposed to be serving him, but instead he was in their chains. So there is a deep irony going on between the promise of God and Joseph's reality. And this is the first example of what the Bible calls exile, where God's people are forced out of the land uh, of promise and then they're taken away into slavery. So essentially what this means is this, that at, at this point in time, Joseph doesn't feel blessed at all. He feels cursed. He feels the opposite of what God had promised him. And as I was studying this week, I was again just struck by the deep horror of what humans are capable of doing to other humans and just how tragic this world is at times and how evil it is. Before we even begin comparing ourselves to Joseph, although we are going to get there in a second, 
we have to come to the grips of, of the reality that there are millions of people on this planet, millions of people 17 years and younger right now in our generation who've experienced the exact same thing that Joseph has experienced. They've been trafficked as sex slaves or something else near that. In fact, I was in Brazil uh, this last February, northern Brazil, um, and we partnered with an organization called Justice, Compassion, and Hope. If you've been around, you know, of, at least you know about this ministry. And, and when I was there, I met a young boy. He's 11 years old, uh, same age as my daughter, and I connected with him. He's a really sweet kid, um, but it was clear that he had been through a lot in his life and come to find out he had been trafficked. He had been sold by some members of his family, and he had been repeatedly raped by men in the community, and he'd been videoed, and they had put those videos online. And then there was an entirely, just totally horrendous botched investigation that happened in their town, and so what ended up happening is everyone in the whole city knew what had happened to this boy, and the friends that he had in his class were beginning to make fun of him for being gay, and of course he was just being raped, that's all that it was, and, and yet, he was being made fun of and teased ruthlessly by his community. And so by the time that I was introduced to him, he was nearly suicidal at the absolute end of himself and not believing in any stretch that he was loved or cared for. And I just got to tell you, that, that's a tra- that is a traumatizing thing to witness. And it's an even more traumatizing thing to go through. I think of just the relative safety and privilege that I've come from. And I'm looking at this poor young boy who shouldn't have to carry any of this trauma. And yet he can barely even imagine living another day on this earth because of how unloved and hated and how evil the world is. And so I found myself coming home just like literally just so, so frankly just frustrated. Because when we talk in the United States about human trafficking and stuff like that, what comes into a lot of people's minds is just like a Liam Neeson movie or something like that. And so all the questions that we're asking are just completely the wrong questions. We don't know how to even think and talk about sex trafficking. How do we prevent it? How do we end it? And so the education process of getting people like us on board with the mission of what needs to happen in places like Brazil is just timely. It's, it's time... It's time uh, it's really difficult. It takes a lot of time, and it's also, it also costs a lot of money. I was, I, I'm frankly just like crying out to God in my airplane seat, saying, God, these kids, they don't have time for us to get our crap together and figure out how we're going to care for them. We just need to activate the church to care for these people. And so anyways, I, you know, I, I didn't know this, this uh, documentary, The Sound of Freedom, is coming out. Uh, I didn't, at the time, I didn't know, but I was praying for something like it. Uh, some, some kind of docu-series, well-produced, that would educate the consumer market here in the United States about like, what's actually happening, what's going on in, around the world and even in our back door. And um, so, anyways, I, I, I've, I haven't seen the movie. I've only read the reviews and seen what people are saying online. I'm not really a moviegoer myself, but I highly recommend you go see that film. I've heard great things. The message seems to be on point and sort of tracking with what is actually happening in the world right now. And when you watch it, 
I just encourage you to, to like be moved with, by compassion, to step up and to start supporting ministries like Justice and Compassion and Hope. Every single dollar that you give goes straight to helping kids like that. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've witnessed it with my own eyes, and I see the difference that it makes. They teach kids about their worth, who they are in Christ. They, teach them, they educate them. They show them they have other options besides selling their bodies. In a world where six out of 10 girls and four to five boys out of 10 are being regularly abused or trafficked, this is the needed, this is the thing of the hour for us. This is the thing that our generation is responsible for taking care of these kids and for coming up with solutions to these problems. And frankly, yeah, amen, amen. And, and, and frankly, we, we don't have years to work it out. We've got to, we've got to act. We've got to act. And so I just encourage you, I just encourage you to act. I don't know what that means for you. Any dollar amount is, is um, appropriate, whether that's a dollar or a million, it's appropriate because the need is extremely great and um, you can make a difference and I've seen with my own eyes what happens when a few dollars is spent in some of these communities overseas. So with all of that being said, those kids have a much clearer understanding of Joseph's life than we do. They know what it, what it is to be sold into slavery for a couple pieces of silver. And yet you still may find yourself in a similar place in life where you feel like your life is the opposite of what God had promised. And that may not feel like an exaggeration to you. That might feel like reality. Certainly that was the boy's story that I met in Brazil. That was the reality for Joseph as well. But here's the message of the scriptures, particularly here and what we're reading. That is the story. There is a disparity between what God has promised and Joseph's reality. And there is a disparity between what God has promised and your reality. But that's not forever. That's for now. This is not the end of your story. It's not the end of Joseph's story. This is a middle chapter at most. And 17-year-old Joseph couldn't possibly know what God was preparing for him in Egypt and the good things that God had in store for him. Sometimes all we know is we are being led into the valley of the shadow of death and we want details. But God often doesn't give us details. It's kind of a frustrating thing about him that I've, <laughs> that I've witnessed myself. He doesn't always give us details, but what he does do is he gives us dreams and he gives us promises in his word. And the invitation is for us to just trust him at his word. And I just pose that to you as a challenge. Will you trust God at his word? We don't know the headspace that Joseph's in at the time when he's in the Ishmaelite chains on his way down to Egypt. But we do know that even after many, many years in exile, slavery, prison, he never let the dream that God gave him die. He never stopped believing in what God had promised. This week, my wife and I have just sort of been grieving the amount of friends and uh, family that we have seen just no longer believing in Jesus and sort of starting to walk away as we speak or whatever. And um, it's just basically, the, the, the story is that life in exile sort of wrecked their faith. They're seeing a disparity between what God promised and what they're experiencing. Like, I, don't, I just don't know if this is it. And I actually have a lot of compassion for people like that. I understand some of their reasons because it's hard to believe that you're blessed when all that it feels is that you're cursed. And that's what it's like to be Joseph. But, 
We want to be like Joseph, who has resilient faith through all of it. He hoped against hope in the language of of Romans. He hoped against hope that God was going to do what he promised. We want to become like that. We want to be dreamers in exile. Not in a manifest destiny kind of a way, but in a way of like what God has promised, he's able also to do. So I'm going to believe that even though the situation tells me otherwise, the circumstances tell me otherwise. And everything in Joseph's mind is telling him, I'm going the wrong way. This is not where I'm supposed to go. I'm supposed to be ruling in Canaan, but God is sending me to Egypt. I do not get what's happening right now. And he was tempted, like some of us are tempted, to give up the faith and to disbelieve, but he's still dreaming. He's still dreaming in what God had promised, and he's not given up. And that's the beauty of Jacob's story. In retrospect, many, many years later, his life's transformed. All of the dreams come true, by the way. And he's the second in command in Egypt. And he's looking back on his brother's betrayal uh, of selling him into slavery decades prior. And this is what he says in Genesis 50. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I think personally, I think this is the most important feature of God's redemption. Here's what Joseph's saying. He's saying God is so good that he's able to take evil intention, rebellion and sin, and work them in to his plan of rescuing and saving the world. So when you think about it, like violent hatred and human trafficking, it can only lead to hell, right? That's, that's, the answer should be yes, except it's not. God is masterfully and expertly working through evil to save many lives through Joseph's story. And this is just God's wisdom and power that is unstoppable. It, it's, he does the impossible. And in fact, that is the, the real meaning of, of uh, Romans 8.28. It says, and we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. I think that has been misread and misinterpreted in our generation. I just want you to notice the interplay between God's uh, providence and God's promise, his redemption. I'm not saying, and I don't think the scriptures are saying that all things are good. And it's not also saying that all things are God's will. It's saying that God works all things together for good to those who are called by him. And for those of you who've suffered, right, like you've got some kind of chronic illness or infertility or miscarriage or tragic loss of some kind, this is a very important distinction to say, you know what, no, human trafficking is not God's will. That was the Ishmaelites, that was the brothers, that was the results of everyone's sins. Pedophiles and human traffickers are not doing God's will. The mystery is why God doesn't override all of that rebellious will all of the time, but yet somehow the, 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 the storyline of the Bible is telling the story that God is able to outmaneuver evil so that in the end he still accomplishes his good intended outcome. And that is a reality that has been epitomized in the story of Jesus. Jesus went to the cross in a very similar trajectory and arc as Joseph. He's sold. He waits trial. He's in chains. And he willingly embraces his cross. And there's something about that story, his death and resurrection, that makes it possible for you and I to experience new life. That's the whole point of the gospel. And I think this is also super helpful when it comes to understanding God's will for my life. Uh, in, in, in my experience, people are really fixated on like the fork in the road, like which way does God want me to go, right or left? It's a fair question, and I completely understand why we have it. But again, 
Sometimes God just doesn't give us all the details, and even after a lot of prayer, we, it's not really clear, right or left. So really what God wants from us is he wants us to be focused on him and to pay attention to the evidence of his handiwork in our lives. So what I mean by that is this. Um, what are the kinds of things that God wants to do? And where do you see evidence in, of that stuff in your life? This has sometimes been referred to as like the fingerprint of God principle. Well, the reality is, is that he wants to redeem all things. The reality is he wants to make things whole. He wants to transform things. He wants to take things that are broken, and he wants to restore them. Okay, now, look around you. Where do you see evidence of that happening? And now your job is to simply cooperate with God's redemption and to partner with him in those things that you see him doing. Notice where God is at work and join him in it. So that's the, that's the fingerprint of God principle. Don't necessarily look for the right or the left. Become an investigator and discover where do you see the evidence of God working in your world around you and join him in the things that you know he loves to do. So the question that is left for us today, and this will happen very quickly, is how do we do that? How do we actually live this out? Well, I have five quick lessons from exile. Number one, who you are becoming on the journey is preparing you for your calling. See, a big part of Joseph's exile was just straight up discipline for selfish living. Proverbs 3 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. So God's discipline is just God's way of training you and forming your heart. It's actually a really beautiful thing. So what challenges, what hardships are you going through in your life? And what of those things might actually just be God's gentle discipline? It's actually there for a very particular reason. God wants to discipline you, not because he uh, wants to shame you or guilt you or hurt you or harm you, but because he actually wants to train you to become more like him. So the question then becomes, are you resisting that or are you cooperating with God? How his discipline may actually be a catalyst for forming virtue in your heart. You hear health coaches and, 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 and um, elite athletes say this all the time, that the best way for you to get healthy is not to reward yourself after hard work, but to learn the sweat of effort. Learn to love the sweat of effort. You actually begin to embrace and enjoy the challenge as it is perfecting you and increasing your gains and all of that when it comes to your physical health. The same is true, I think, when it comes to your spiritual health. Embrace the challenge. Embrace God's discipline as God deepening you. And what I found in our culture is that when God disciplines us, it often makes us question whether God's there or if he even cares of us, about us. But in actuality, if we're reading the scriptures correctly, when God disciplines us, it's actually proof that he does love us. The, like the father who delights in his children, our job, again, is to cooperate with his transforming work. Number two, you need, a hum, you need to be humble before the Lord can exalt you. You need to be humble before the Lord can exalt you. If God made 17-year-old Joseph a ruler, his ego would have destroyed him. And the scripture says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And then Jesus, again, he just epitomizes what it means to be humble. He appeared as a man, emptied himself, became obedient unto death in the language of Philippians 2. 
And then, after he was obedient unto death, the Father exalted him above every name, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So after Jesus willingly humbled himself, the Father exalted him. And I think the same is true for us as well. Back when I was 18 years old, I got a tattoo. It's the only tattoo I have on my body, and it says that I am a servant of Christ. And my whole life from that point on, I've meant to try and keep it my aim that my life is in service to King Jesus. And I think the best way to describe a leader in the family of God is a servant. And I, uh, let me tell you, I'm, I'm far from getting this perfect. Just a couple of days ago, I uh, had an experience. There's a homeless man who has been around our community for years, and I see him from time to time, and we always like to try and help him, take him to the hospital, get him some socks, go buy him some food. Um, whatever he needs, we try and do it. We bought him a bike once and all kinds of things like that. And uh, he's actually been doing really good. He's been clean and sober and trying to get his life cleaned up. And so we were just attempting, trying to help him a little bit more this week. And we ended up having this conversation where he wanted me to give him cash and a bunch of other stuff that I just wasn't willing or able to give to him. And he very viciously and aggressively cursed me out. Like for a good minute. Like it was like pretty intense. And I remember just like just watching him do this and 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 it just really it it really upset me it deeply upset me and um so like a fool I just argued back with him I was like hey man you know and I just like gave him a piece of my mind it's just so foolish and dumb uh but I but I did it and later later that same day I was like still I was just like feeling so off about it I was like crap, I, I, I really, I, I messed that situation up, and I'm embarrassed to tell you guys that that's what I did, but that's what I did. And, um, and the Lord reminded me, he's like, actually, um, that man is God's gift to you, Andrew, because you say you want to be my servant, and he was treating you like my servant. He was treating you like a slave, and you wanted him to respect you. You wanted him to honor you. I wanted him to like appreciate the fact that I consistently take some time out of my day to see how I can help him and pray for him and care for him and all of that. But he wasn't going to respect me. He didn't respect me. He treated me like a servant. And I have been saying all along that that's who I am. So he's actually God's gift to me if I'm able to see it. At the time, I didn't and I acted foolishly because there's still a lot of pride in my heart that the Lord's wanting to uproot. It's not to shame you or me, hopefully. Maybe you think less of me now. That's possible. But the point is that we're actually being called by God to humble ourselves in an ever-increasing way. And I think that the mature in Christ are able to set aside their preferences and to be treated like a servant. How do you act when people treat you that way? How do you act when people treat you like a servant? I think that's a question that begs answering. Almost done. Number three, lessons from exile. Sometimes the most vital role you can play in God's plan to redeem the world is to suffer and to serve like Jesus did on the cross because when you overcome, the glory of God is revealed in you. There's so much to love about Jesus, but the glory of Christ was revealed through his suffering. 
See, the Orthodox Christian belief has always been that he has the final word, and, all, and the final word of human history is that Jesus being executed on the cross and rising again on the third day means that we all have eternal life. And so that event accomplished a great victory for us, and there was a deep and profound glory that was revealed through his life that I believe could not be achieved through a life of ease and comfort. And Martin Luther King Jr., we thought a lot about this week because he's a dreamer and he was fighting to end uh, some civil rights violations. He says, Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear precedes the crown that we wear. To be a Christian, one must take up his cross with all of the, its difficulties and agonizing and tragedy-packed content and carry it until the very cross leaves its mark upon us and redeems us to that more excellent way which only comes through suffering. Love that so much. Martin Luther King understood something that also the apostles in the book of Acts understood. Each and every time that they were persecuted, they were imprisoned, they were beaten, after they were released, they would run off and they would celebrate. They would celebrate. You can, you can follow this as you study the book of Acts. They would celebrate for being counted worthy of sharing in Christ's suffering. And I just believe that we want the glory of Christ revealed in us. Romans 8 says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I understand this is a message that cuts, a grand, a, cuts across the vein of our culture. However, I genuinely believe that we need to have that same mindset as, as Martin Luther King Jr. did, as uh, the, the Acts of the Apostles did, and that we would actually rejoice when we are counted worthy to share in Christ's suffering. Number four, God might lead you into demanding and even dark places because he wants to use your suffering and your gifts to become a source of life there. See, God wanted Joseph to bring his gifts and his blessings and his suffering to Egypt. By the way, I don't think my friend Allie feels like going back to northern Brazil where she grew up. It is intense there. It's insanely hard. It's very primitive. It's extremely hot. There's a lot of witchcraft and curses being put on her and her friends. Um, She's gotten a lot of threats from the government. People are begging her regularly for way more than she can give them. And she's seeing the faces regularly of trafficked children. It's a life-changing, traumatizing experience. I've witnessed it myself. And yet she's willing to do it multiple times a year. Why? Because the people of Jesus are being sent into the dark places in order to spread the light of Christ. I believe that the people of Jesus are meant to run towards the places that most people want to run away from. Because we carry the light of Christ that can be shining in these dark places. Which is more powerful? The light that's in you or the the darkness that's in the world? What do you believe? I believe that, that, that the final word of human affairs is that Jesus rose from the grave. That's what I believe. And I believe that light is changing and transforming the whole world. And I believe that one day he'll return and make all things right. So, therefore, if anyone's equipped, if anyone's called, if anyone has a vocation to go to where it's dark, it's the people who are, who, who are the people of Jesus. And so I was praying for my daughter this week. And um, we had a, just a time where we were praying. And we, we call her Isabel the Brave. She's had some dealings with anxiety throughout her life for very, very different, very, various different reasons. So we just remind her, you know what, sweetie, you are Isabel the Brave. 
And we, we pray over her often. And as I was praying for her, I just got this sense, this very same idea, that the Lord is preparing my daughter, and he's actually using my wife and myself to equip her, to make her ready to be the kind of person who has the resilient faith and courage to run to places that most people just do not want to go because it's too hard and it's too dark. And that she will actually be a catalyst for people coming to faith in Christ and that she will actually shine a light in dark places. I see that, 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 that power in her spirit as her dad, and I'm calling that out of her and I'm praying it in. And I want the same thing for our community too. I want this in a, in a post-Christian, secular, increasingly dark space. Are we going to be the ones who stay and bring the light of Christ or not? I want that for us, and I think you want it too, because we want to see Christ take his throne. Finally, and this is how we end. For Joseph, what seems like a curse may actually be God repositioning you to increase the impact of your life. See, Joseph was convinced he was being led in the wrong direction. He's like, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I'm not supposed to be a slave in Egypt. I'm supposed to be a ruler in Canaan. But what was actually happening is God was repositioning him to exactly where God wanted him. And because Joseph had the resilience and because he had the boldness and courage, he didn't let that dream in exile die. And because he was faithful, he was actually able to see God do something that I don't think he would have seen had he not stayed faithful to it, which was to take a bunch of things that are extraordinary evil, extraordinarily evil and outmaneuver them and use them for good. And we want to see that here in Central Oregon too. Amen? Let's stand and pray together. Father, we just want to say thank you. Thank you that your word has power. Thank you that the light dominates the darkness. That's what we believe. And even though some of us feel as though we're not living in the reality of your promise, in fact, it kind of feels almost like the opposite of that. We're lost or we're confused or it feels like we're chained up and we can't go where we want to go or where we think we need to be. God, would you help us to see what you want us to see, would you help us to see that you're actually positioning us to where you want us to be so that we can like image and, 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 and shine the light of Christ in dark places. God, we, we know that there's still parts of our, our hearts that need to be trained and formed and transformed to be like yours. And so we just, we just plainly ask in the name of Jesus, would you begin that deep work beneath the surface of our hearts so that we can be trusted with great spiritual power and responsibility? And I just want to pray for those of you who maybe relate a lot to Joseph's story, not where it ends up, but where he is today. I think the word for you is to, to just keep on believing and trusting in his promise. What God has said is that he is coming again and that he's going to unite heaven and earth under Christ. That the ultimate victory that Jesus won on the cross would be fully realized 
in the new heavens and new earth where he will reign in perfect justice and righteousness. And so we just, we just want to lean into that a bit more and just say, God, yeah, we, we want more of your spirit. We want more of your presence. We want the faith to believe when it doesn't feel right, when it looks off. We want the faith to believe that we heard you right, that your word is true, that we can hold you to your word and that you always come through on your promises. And so I just pray blessing over my friends in Jesus' name. And I pray that you would restore to us joy, restore to us hope, give us that resilient faith to dream in exile. We love you, Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So as we respond, I, I encourage you to come, come forward, grab the bread and cup, and then go back to your seat. We'll take it together as a church. But I also just want to uh, remind you that this act, this act of singing and worship, it's actually a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful resistance against a world that wants to worship many other things besides the Lord Jesus. But what we're doing here is we're saying, you know what, no. He's the one who we praise. He's the one who's worthy of all of it. So let's give him the glory and honor and praise that he's worthy of. And let's head to the tables together.